Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Well, good morning. We are uh, continuing our sermon series that we call Jesus' Last Words. These are the words that he spoke from the cross, knowing that his time uh, before his death and resurrection was short. And um, I wanted to start off with this. I, I just read this book called uh, The Awakened Brain by Lisa Miller. Um, she works, has been working for years in a psychiatric hospital in, uh, in New York City in a Jewish neighborhood. She herself is just like nominally Jewish. And she said uh, they were having one of these typical unfruitful group sessions with a lot of patients and stuff. This was in October. And all of a sudden, this one patient said, what are we going to do for Yom Kippur? Now, if you know what Yom Kippur is, it's like really the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. It's the Day of Atonement, right? It's mentioned uh, prominently in the Bible in the, in the Old Testament. And uh, the guy who was in charge of the meeting, the psychiatrist in charge, he goes, like, we're, we're not doing anything. And uh, she thought about that later, and she thought, you know, why don't we do something? So she made it an offer. She said, we're going to have a Yom Kippur uh, celebration for anybody who wants to come. It'll be in the kitchen of the hospital here. Um, and just show up if you want. And there were four people who showed up. And she was kind of surprised that these people, one of them was a guy who was used to just barricading himself in his room all the time, just refused to say anything. But she noticed that at this like little thing that they had, it was like people just came alive. It was just like, wow, this is... This really surprised her. Even the guy who barricaded himself in his room talked about forgiveness of sins, which is what you know the day is about and how God forgives sins. And she thought, well, this is just a temporary thing here. But in the days to come, it had some results. And she started thinking, I wonder if we're missing something here in our profession. You know? um, and, she, and she started to realize that spiritual connection brings life. Uh, and she began to do a lot of research on this in spite of the fact there was a lot of resistance in her profession uh, over the years, and that's what resulted in this book. Uh, but anyway, I was thinking about that in connection with what was happening to Jesus on the cross because spiritual connection brings life, but what was happening with Jesus was the opposite. He was losing spiritual connection, and that literally killed him. And I want to just uh, point to this word that Jesus spoke. It's like about the fourth word. And he said things in this word that he had never said before. Uh, and they're significant. So it says in the account in Matthew, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabatani, which means... My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That is like a remarkable statement if you've read through the Gospels because, first of all, that's the only time that Jesus is recorded as calling his Father God. He goes, my God, my God. Up to this time, every single time when he's talking to the Father, he's going, Father. Or he's even using Abba, which is a form of endearment, like Dad or Daddy. It's been all close. It's all personal. All of a sudden, it's like there seems to be a, a really different form of address. And I think it's, it's pretty clear that there's like a, a loss of connection, a loss of personal connection. 
you know, it would be like, you know, uh, Gary come into church and I would go like, hey, uh, shorts wearer in the winter guy, you know? <laughs> no, that's Gary, you know? Or I would just go, hi, anesthetist, you know? But that's John, you know? And it's like, it's, it's like, or you'd go up to your mother and you'd say, oh, good morning, female parent. There's a coldness to that, right? There's just like a, a, a loss of personal uh, connection right there. I, uh, it, it says in Romans 8, verses 15 to 16, that personal connection that Jesus had had with the Father, that's what we have because of what he did. So it says in verse 15, you have, it's talking to believers, right? It says, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And when we come to know the Lord, we begin to see that our way of uh, addressing him and thinking about him changes, doesn't it? It gets more personal. We start thinking of him as Father. When Jesus talked about, okay, when you pray, like when we prayed the Lord's Prayer there, that's Jesus' prayer, right? He says, pray, Father. You know, pray to our Father. It's a personal kind of thing, a personal connection. I uh, read this story in the news about a guy who was out in Rocky Mountain National Park, and he decided to climb Mount Elbert. It's the second highest peak in the continental United States, over 14,000 feet. I don't know if any of you know Warren from um, Saturday night, but uh, he actually told me after the service last night that he's, he and his son climbed this peak he said it almost killed him, you know. It was like, he said his heart was thumping out of his chest for like, for that last half hour as he got to the top of that thing. But there was this guy, and this guy decided what he was going to do was do about a seven-hour round trip, right? So he leaves early in the morning, like 8 o'clock, and uh, he doesn't come back. And by, you know, it's like, finally they get to, what about, it was like about um, 8 o'clock at night. He's been gone like about 12 hours. His friends start to get really worried, so they call park officials. The park officials do this search for him till 3 a.m. Now, they knew he had a phone, right, this guy who was lost. So they're calling on the phone, but there's no answer. They suspended the search at 3 a.m., and at 8 a.m. the next morning, the guy got back to his car. He found his way, got back there. And the park officials said, hey, we were looking for you all night, and we were calling your phone. Did it, did it die? And the guy goes, no. He said, it just was an, uh, a number that I didn't recognize, so I didn't pick up. <laughs> it's a true story. You know, isn't that a kind of a picture of the way it is sometimes with God? It's, it's kind of like God is calling us, and he's calling us. And don't you know people whose lives are just messed up, and they're hurting so badly? I know people like this. And everything has gone wrong, and you point them to the Lord, and they go, just, you know, you need to call on the Lord. Just, that's your answer. Jesus can help you in the situation. You're like, eh, I don't know. I've gone too far, and I don't know if that would, you know, and, they're, and here, they're just not picking up. They're not picking up. And sometimes people get to this point where they're, like, they're followers of the Lord, but then they start getting into a, maybe a period of just lowness and depression or things go wrong in their lives and they go like, oh, I'm just feeling so low, I'm not going to come to church. They're going like, hey, you need to make that connection. 
you need to make that connection. You got to get there. You know, get, this is the place to be when you're hurting. Among believers, where you can make connection with the Lord and just you know, facilitate that happening. But and Jesus on the cross, he's losing that connection. And then the next thing that he says that's peculiar is he goes like, why have you forsaken me? You know, there's, there's like different whys, right? There's sometimes you're just curious. Like you're not, you don't understand why thir- certain things are happening. Like you go like, why did the Indians rename their team the Guardians? I mean, why name them a lame name like that? You're just sort of scratching your head, right? Or why do some people tell me that they think that bell bottoms are coming back in as fashion? Like you're going, really? Oh, no. You know, so it's like we don't get certain things. But then there's a different kind of why, isn't there? There's that why that comes out of confusion and doubts. And you're going like, why? I don't understand why this is happening to me. Why? Why? It's like there, there's disbelief like creeping into your life. You're not getting it. And it's like when we lose that connection with the Lord, when that starts to weaken, when we start drifting away from him, the next thing that happens is a loss of perspective. You know, where once we're going like, you know what, things aren't going well, but I know there's a good plan here. I know that there's something bigger going on that's, that's going to work out. I'm just going to trust that. But now our perspective is like, isn't there anymore. We're going like, this is just random. Why do I have all this bad luck? I don't, I don't get what's happening here. Um, Jesus uh, was quoting from Psalm 22 when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And David saw this coming. And if you look at Psalm 22, he says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. And then look at verse 4. He says, Our ancestors trusted in you, and you rescued them. And then verse 5. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. Can you get the overtones there? He's going, you used to be on the scene, but you're not. Where are you? I don't get this. Why? But I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. And then later on in the chapter, my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Boy, can you see a lot of things that were happening at the cross there? And David saw this happening a thousand years before And Jesus is reflecting these very same things happening in his life. If you ever read the book of Job, you see the same thing happening to Job that's happening to Jesus here. You know, Job, in the first couple chapters of the book, uh, Job sees this great reverse in his life where he loses all of his stuff and his kids all die horrible deaths and he gets this terrible disease and he's just suffering And then for 36 chapters after that, Job ruminates about this. And his friends ruminate with him. And they go nowhere. And they're going, why is this happening? And he just gets stuck. He's drifted away from seeing who who God is. 
And you know how the book turns out, if you've ever read it, is that God never, ever answers the why question. But what does God do? He just shows up. So God appears to Job, and he goes, hey, check out what the things that I do. See me for who I am. And then Job goes, oh. Once he gets that, he gets that connection back, the perspective starts to form again, and he sees things the way they really are. Peter Kreef uh, says this in the case for faith when he's talking about suffering. And he says, as we look at human relationships, we see that lovers don't want explanations. They want presence. And just to know that God is there again, that's enough to give us that perspective. I hear people say this. They go, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why did that happen? I guarantee you, you can bet the ranch in this. You will not do that. You're not going to ask that question. Because when you and I get to heaven and we see the Lord, we're going to be so overwhelmed with his beauty and his love. We're just going to go like, wow. And as we see him, all of a sudden, everything is going to fit into perspective. And all those why questions are just going to disappear. It's like we'll go like, yeah, it was good. He, he knew what he was doing. Man, this guy's good. You know, Got that perspective there. And then he says, why have you forsaken me? I've been forsaken. I'm all alone. It's, and that's depression, isn't it? That's despair. And there's a taste of hell in that. I uh, read this by a book, in a book review by Jonathan Leaf. And I think he said, says it really well. He says, if you have ever been through a bout with depression, you undoubtedly know it unites sadness with meaninglessness. The blank emptiness of the surrounding space deprives the experience of suffering of a feeling of connectedness or purpose. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, here's this time where you have this sadness, but there's no presence of God or any kind of meaning that's around it to give it like a purpose for it, a feeling of connectedness. You're going like, it's just dumb. It's just terrible what I'm going through, and there's no reason for this. That's that loss of perspective. That's depression and despair, and that's what Jesus was feeling on the cross. And I believe that Jesus went through a real experience of hell here. It wasn't just suffering and death, but it was hell itself, because I think this is what hell is like. Uh, Leaf goes on and he says, the most dreadful thing about depression is simply the fear that it will continue. I've talked to people who are in, have been in deep depression. They said that is the worst part, is that at, the mo at that moment you believe it will never end. You won't be able to get out of it. People sometimes think that physical suffering that's intense is, is the hell thing. But, you know, even in the midst of, like, really severe pain, there's this idea that this thing can come to an end. But I think in that depression time, sometimes people feel, I cannot get out. The loss of connection, and then the loss of perspective. And finally, what we have here is like a loss of hope, a loss of hope. And when Jesus describes what hell is like, uh, when he's teaching his disciples, he said people like gnash their teeth. It's like this, ah, oh, oh, this great regret that they blew it. And there's no way out. There is no 
end is just the most horrific thing. In that book, uh, The Awakened Brain, and it's, it's a really good book, but she kind of gets new agey at the end because she's not coming from, really doesn't know the Lord, Lord Jesus at all. But she says in here, and I thought this was good because she did all this, all this research uh, that, you know, over 10 years, be, just to show, because she was going like, look, our, what we're doing, the medication we're doing and the counseling we're doing isn't getting it done. And so she said, in the nationally representative sample of teens, adolescents with a strong personal spirituality were 35 to 75% less likely to experience clinical depression. They had that connection. And she pointed out the fact that the teens who were most prone to depression were teens who had no spiritual connection, but they also happened to be in the quadrant of teens who were the most wealthy and the most well, you know, the most well off at the very best schools. They seemed to be the people who had the least spiritual connection. I think I've noticed this myself. And they were the ones that were most prone to like deep depression and being unable to get out of it. And she concluded, based on 10 years of research here, no other medical intervention, clinical or pharmacological, comes close to a strong personal spiritual core for protection from or lasting therapy for anxiety and serious depression. It's the connection with God and then the regaining of perspective and finally that hope can be dealt with, can be, something can be done. I put this picture of this guy up here. His name is James Fetter and he was born blind and he was a guy who was just suffering from a deep, deep depression, a feeling of worthlessness in his life, that his life was not worth living. And um, he had been born blind, okay? And he, he said this, my parents were and are pro-choice, as I was until about six years ago. And when, as a teenager, I asked my mother whether she would have had an abortion if she had known of my blindness before my birth, she told me that she didn't know. And he said that kind of triggered in him this idea that he needed to prove the worthiness of his existence. And the more striving that he would do, the more walls he hit. He just never could feel that he was good enough to be worthy of life. That's that kind of thing that Jesus was going through at that time. I am unworthy. He's taking on all this sin, and he's just feeling like, I can't be good enough. There is, there is no hope. Now, the question is, how did Jesus get himself into this situation? I mean, here's the Son of God. Here's the one who's got all the answers. He's never even committed a sin. What's the deal? How did he get himself into this predicament? And I, I think, you know, if you look at popular opinion, the attitude of the people around there was, he's got a comment. He deserves it. You know, like it says when it goes on from the story, some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. They're going, this guy needs salvation, you know. Let's see if he gets a supernatural visitation, ultimately. You know, in Isaiah 53, it reflects this. He says he, he was talking about Jesus, looking ahead to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with deepest grief. 
We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his, punish- his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sin. It just seemed that that was the case. I don't know if any of you ever saw this movie called Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood classic. It's kind of a dark movie. But Clint Eastwood plays this uh, aged gunfighter who is, he's had this past that he really regrets, and, but he's short of money. So he takes on a job to kill a couple of guys who are, are really bad guys. And he's joined up in this thing with a guy sitting under the tree who's this young punk who thinks he's all tough, you know, and brags all the time about how great he is. Well, they, they end up in the showdown with these guys, and they kill a couple of guys. And then they have to face the aftermath of what they have done. And I wanted to play you a 51-second clip here from the movie that I thought was the most memorable part of the film. So let's see if we can get this going. It don't seem real. I ain't gonna never breathe again, ever. Now he's dead. And the other one, too. All on account of pulling a trigger. killing a man to take away all he's got and all he's ever gonna have yeah well I guess they had it coming kid's trying to console himself, and he goes, well, I guess he had it coming. And then Clint Eastwood, who's been around the block much more, he says, we all got it coming, kid. Isn't that the truth? You know, I got it coming. You got it coming. None of us really measure up here. We can't just point fingers at anybody else. Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago uh, goes, he says, if only it were all so simple If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You know, he's saying if we can only, you know, it was only so simple as we could go, like, yeah, those dirty racists, you know, those white supremacists, those... Those evil Nazis, you know, whoever the, the, the villains are in, our, in the peace, if we could just get rid of them, we'd have a better society. But we've got to understand that deep down inside of us, there's this, like, evil that's there. And we don't really, in our heart of hearts, we're not really trying that hard to, to cut it out. You know, it's like that old Pogo saying, right, from the old comic strips that I read when I was young. We have met the enemy, and he is us. It just it reminded me of uh, the new Teslas that have the full self-driving component to them. And you can actually choose one of three settings for your self-driving. You can choose chill, which is where you are keeping a safe distance behind everybody. You're not switching a lot of lanes, right? You're stopping at all the stop signs. Or you could choose average. Or you could choose assertive. With assertive, it says you follow close behind people. You weave a lot of lanes. Uh, It says that you do rolling stops. 
And it says you also refuse to leave the passing lane. I mean, it's basically, you can choose to drive like a jerk. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's just like, but isn't this the way we are as humans? You know, this is, we're kind of going like, yeah, if we could choose evil, maybe we would choose it. And we all got it coming. And, you know, we, we got to realize he was crushed, or typo there, eh? He was crushed for our sins. And it says, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. We all had it coming. But Jesus voluntarily absorbed all our punishment, suffering, death, and hell itself. And he absorbed that loss of connection, which led to that loss of perspective, which led to that loss of hope, and he suffered it all on our behalf. Just amazing when he had no reason to do that except for love for us. Now, one more thing I wanted to mention here is that in this story, if you look close enough, there's faith in the face of despair. And if you go back to that, uh, that Psalm 22, that Jesus is actually, like, he's quoting from it at this point. If you read far enough in the chapter, you begin to realize that this was an act of faith to quote that chapter. Because when you get toward the end, in verse 23, it switches. And it says, Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. You know, just listen to this. It's like in our lives, I think we do have these periods of time where we go through a, a kind of a loss of connection. We start wandering maybe away from the Lord, or circumstances in our lives tend to, <clears throat> tend to overwhelm us, and we start to lose perspective, and the whys start hitting us, right? They start coming, and sometimes we feel that, oh, man, there's just no hope in my, in my situation. And I feel like this is one thing that the story shows us, and these things that Jesus said and reflected say, if we use anxiety and depression as an opportunity to seek spiritual help, instead of just dealing with its symptoms, instead of like trying to dull the feelings in, in the various ways that, that our culture uh, suggests doing it, it can be a powerful catalyst for good in our lives. And I've seen that again and again when people get into this situation and they begin to say, you know what, I'm going to start looking for the real answers here. They, they begin to start looking toward the Lord. And when we start calling on the name of Jesus things start to happen. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it says, when you know Jesus, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That perspective will come. And the Lord is going like, he's waiting for us. He's, he's calling out to us, and he's saying, answer, pick up. It's going ha- to be, you'll, I can bring good even out of this in your life. You know, that James Fetter that I mentioned before became a believer became a follower of Jesus in the midst of his despair. And he said this, I have discovered that my worth is not dependent on my productive capabilities, my intellectual abilities, or the functioning of my sensory organs. My existence has already been justified by the ultimate sacrifice Christ made for all of us on Calvary. Let's pray.
Father, as we come to you this morning, we want to thank you for the fact that you are our good, good Father, and we are your children, and that's the truth. Lord, that you've, you've got it. You've got us in this family. And Lord Jesus, we cannot thank you enough for shouldering that burden of all of the, the, all the sin and all of the waywardness that's like deep in our hearts and taking all the blame for us, going through what we never could have survived going through. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for, for thinking of us, for caring for us, for putting in the phone calls to our souls. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that's walking in that hard anxiety, that, that depression, and that feeling of, of meaninglessness this morning, Lord, that you would minister to that person, that you would say, hey, I, I've taken care of it all. Call on me. I've got the answers. I want to connect with you. Lord, that we would call on your name, knowing that you're going to be there. And I pray this all in your name, Jesus. You made it all happen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.